Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Good morning, everybody. Oh, wow. Y'all are much more awake than the first service. They were like feasting on turkey early. We're so glad that you're here. Um, by way of a, just another announcement, I want to announce um, that we are now live streaming our services. Yay. Some of you have uh, asked about that. During COVID, we did first person where the pastor was just in front of the camera. But now uh, what's being done right here right now is being broadcast live as it happens. Uh, we've broadcast our nine o'clock service from the Chapel Segan location and the 1045 from Chapel LSU. Why is this important? Well, uh, COVID forced our hand to kind of develop and move in that direction. But I want to give you the priorities as, uh, as we see them. <clears throat> First, it's, uh, it allows our missionaries around the world that are in very hard to reach places, if they have internet access, to dial in. To dial in and have a taste of the church that sent them. You may have he heard us say that when we send people to the hardest reach places, they're going to learn two languages. And we're often, we are very careful not to describe where missionaries are if they're in places where it would be unsafe for that to be known. But I can ask you to imagine what it would be like to learn two languages. You'd have to go in the interior of a community, of a country, in order to find yet a second language that has not uh, been translated, doesn't have a written language, or doesn't have the Bible in its language, or a presentation of the gospel. And so our online services uh, are recorded, so they're there, you know, forever. <clears throat> and um, so they can tune in live, though it may be a big time change, uh, or uh, they can watch them later. And secondly, and we all experience this, do we not, that uh, we go to the internet before we buy a toaster for Christmas to find out which is the best one and gets the best rating. We review our books online. We uh, investigate doctor's offices, dentists, all, you know, we do everything. Uh, we kind of pre-expose ourselves. Well, lots of people that find their way to the chapel, I will ask them, how did you hear about us? It used to be without question that someone told them. But since COVID, many people have just, they just go to the, uh, the internet and they have the full experience of who we are particularly people that may have been out of church for a very long time. So we're excited that people can actually tune in. They can hear multiple voices. They can see multiple congregations. And they can say to themselves, you know, hey, this is a, this is a place I'd like to check out in person. And thirdly, and probably the least important but not insignificant, you have no reason to miss church now. Wherever you are on the planet, you can dial in. On, on the upside of that, you know, um, we work hard to kind of take the congregation through, um, through um, a course of, uh, in the book of Genesis, for example. And we know that life happens and that you can't be here every week. And um, really, on, on average, people are 1.7 times a month in church. Uh, that's the average. You guys are way above average. I saw most of you here last week and the week before that and all that good stuff. But it does give you the freedom uh, during the holidays or any other time to, to dial in. So I was just receiving text from my youngest daughter and my wife, who's not here. Uh, they're both watching online. So welcome. <laughs> We're thrilled about it. Genesis chapter 6 is where we are. We're in a lot of passages today. If you uh, listen to audiobooks, I love a good audiobook. 
I don't listen to it at its uh, 1.0 speed. I listen to 1.25, 1.5. This is a 1.5 kind of Sunday. We're going through parts of chapter 6, all of chapter 7, parts of chapter 8. Well, Kevin, why are you doing that? Well, we're taking a big bite. We're trying to encapsulate the whole story. We could obviously summarize some of it because it's going to sound repetitive. But here's a value that we have and a realization we have. The value we have is the Word of God is important. So rather than just talk about it, let's read it in its entirety. And we don't always do that, but on this series, it's because of the uh, realization that we have that maybe, maybe you've not read this. Uh, we find increasingly people are unfamiliar with very familiar passages. And when it comes to the book of Genesis, most people think, well, that's about Adam and Eve and Noah and the animals and the rainbow. And that's all of Genesis. Well, there's a lot more. We're in month three of Genesis, and we're just now getting to the flood story. And, and when you talk about this story from the Bible, it generates a lot of questions. Two of the, of the most prominent questions are, one, did this really happen? Is this really history, or is this a fable, or some other kind of device to kind of teach us a lesson? And as I said last week, we often come to the Bible with many questions, and I say bring any question you have to the Bible. You just, uh, two things I would ask you to do. One, realize that it may not be trying to answer the question you bring. Now, Excuse me, not too long ago, there used to be a thing called a phone book. Everybody had one or access to one. And if you've never seen one, go find one. But it's a, it, it was a list of names and businesses. That's it. That's all that was in the book. So if you were to grab the phone book, for example, and go, I really want to learn how to make an omelet, a ham and cheese omelet, you could go through every page of, say, like Dallas or New York. Those phone books were like this thick. You're not going to find that answer. That's not what it's designed to give you. A lot of times the questions we ask the Bible, it's not designed to give us. So I would ask you to just have that mindset. The other mindset, and this one's hard for modern uh, Western thinkers, is to not put yourself above it and not say, if I don't understand it, then it must not be true, which is oftentimes how we come at it. I don't understand you. It doesn't make you less true or make me reject you. But people can go, I don't understand the Bible, so it can't be true, and I'm... And so I, I know that there, there are things that we can ask. Was the boat big enough? How do you know about this and the rain? We're going to look at some of that. But the second problem that this story often generates <clears throat> is the problem of judgment. Because it's a story of a, of a man who is saved from judgment. And many people will ask, well, can a loving God judge the entire earth everybody on it and the animals, that seems so harsh. Both are valid concerns. Let's take the first one. Is it history? Is it history? Did it happen? Well, in the 1800s, as the industrial age was dying and the scientific age was emerging in new ways, uh, a German geographer, Richard Andrus, began to collect flood stories from around the world, discovering that many, many cultures had their own version of a global flood story. So it's, it's not just in ancient Near East, it's global. He uh, collected 88 
different stories from 88 different cultures and languages, 42 of them from the Eastern Hemisphere and 46 of them from the Western Hemisphere. And the, the stories that are, you know, that, are, that we most know are from the ancient Middle East, and they're very, very old. Uh, and, and when you compare them, they have a lot of similarities. Probably the most similar and the most old is from the Sumerian people. And this is 18th or 19th century BC. Here's what it says. I'm sure you can read it. No. It's a really old, different alphabet, but that's a part of the flood story from their perspective. And from their perspective, um, God was angry with man. Um, and that's kind of the long and short of it. The biblical account says, that, says something else. It says that God is deeply troubled. So when we come to the Bible, it's a story about God. It helps us understand humanity. And I need you to, I need you to see that God is just not irritated like you would be kind of at a, at a light that's broken in Baton Rouge. Somebody said, Kevin, if you listen to yourself long enough on Sunday mornings, you know what we discovered? You hate Baton Rouge traffic. Well, you don't have to listen to me ever again. I hate Baton Rouge traffic. We'll just put that out there. You sit at a broken light, you can get irritated. God is more than irritated. He is heartbroken. Back in chapter 6, verse 5 and 6 say this. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth. And he gets to determine its greatness, not us. And every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only on evil all the time. This is really bad. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. He's not just angry. He's heartbroken. He's heartbroken. And so this is not just one, one more story of the ancient Near East writers. This is God's story. And what we understood from the, our study about the Bible is, earlier, is that God he directed the writer of this story in the Bible, and it gives us insight into who he is, including uh, the fact that this is a story not only of judgment, but of redemption. Now, other versions kind of build a case for the truth. They confirm that there is a story, right? But, but it doesn't suggest that it's a myth. It suggests that it, it actually happened, and it's a story of judgment. Now, that's the second big hurdle that we have to get over, judgment. So I just want to talk about that for just a minute, because it seems so harsh that God would judge. And when you talk about God's judgment, you also have to talk about evil, evil. It's a category that many Christians have in their vocabulary and their worldview, but in the culture around us that often influences us, maybe more than the Bible, it's not a category that they dip into often. When there's a tragic loss of life, when there is innocent loss of life where somebody comes in and just kills people indiscriminately, we don't mind saying that's evil. When young women and children and infants are used as sexual toys in a market, a, a slave market, we're even quicker to say, that's evil. But by and large, it's not a term we use that often. And God, you know, in, in his point of view, there's evil in this world. And we're going to get to that. Now, there are multiple generations in this room. There are those on my end, and then there's those on the younger end. Kind of the modern, the older the, of those in the room, 
that there was a, a prominent thinking about evil. Matter of fact, it wasn't thought about at all. People didn't think about evil. Matter of fact, they used to say, we're going to outgrow evil. We're just going to get better and better. And of course, that, that hasn't happened. But that mindset still can exist, that there's a few bad apples, but generally, you know, with, with progression and, and technology and science and information, we're getting better. The problem with that is when, when you're slapped in the face, because it often has to be personal and direct, when you're slapped in the face by evil, you're completely shocked by it. Shocked. Oh, my gosh. How could that be? And we tend to have an immature response to it. N.T. Wright, in his little book, Evil and the Justice of God, for those of you who are looking for some reading over the holidays, it's thin, no pictures, but here it is, Evil and the Justice of God. He makes the point that the immature response is one of blaming. We tend to blame. We tend to blame. We want to sue. We want to blame. It's not our fault. It's not evil. It's somebody's fault. And we can be self-righteous and pompous. And if we don't blame others, we can blame ourselves. And when we blame ourselves, it leads us into depression and, and we just kind of get overwhelmed. So that's kind of the modern view of evil. A postmodern view that some of the younger generation in this room is exposed to, well, it's a much, much more cynical view. It basically says um, uh, that, that things are bad and they're not going to get better. And there's nothing you can do about it. Wright would say this, it's hardly surprising then that this mindset has produced a steady rise of the suicide rate, not the least among young people who have so much to look forward to, but who have imbibed postmodern thought through every pore. It's bad and there's nothing you can do about it. So there are two extremes. It's bad and there's nothing you can do about it, or we're getting better. And in the middle, I would say Christianity says evil exists and God has done something about it. It's called justice. Not only has he done something about it, he will do something about it. That which we experience in this life. And that makes, makes a huge difference. Wright says about the flood, he says, the flood offers the same pattern of God's reaction to evil. On the one hand, a literal torrential judgment, blotting out both land and animals. And on the other hand, an act of grace to rescue one family from the debacle, indicating that God, excuse me, indicating both God's purpose for creation will continue and that God is committed to working out that purpose with sorrow in his heart. I need you to see the God of the flood as a gracious and compassionate God. I want to ask you to consider something this morning. I don't know which of those camps you're in or if you have a thoroughly Christian view, but I'd like for you just to pause and consider your own heart and what's in it and see if you can't readily acknowledge with just after just a small examination that there's evil in, a, in the human heart. There's a, there's a hatred that rises up in me that is surprising when it borders on violence. When, my, when the profanity that, 
is registered in my head, makes it way to the, the back of my teeth. And as a pastor, I've been, I've been really good, very well trained at how to stop it there. But any reflection of what's going on in my heart reveals I've, I've as good as said everything that was in there. The lusts and passions, they can tempt me. I'm, 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 on one hand, I get surprised. On another hand, I'm, I'm not surprised. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is wicked and deceitful and beyond cure. Who can know it? I, the Lord, know the heart. And why do I want you to consider that? Because at the end of our service today, I'm going I'm to invite you to trust in Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you that opportunity if you've never done that. Just say, you know what? I'm going to place my trust in Jesus. You may think about him. You may be in church regularly, but you maybe have not said, I'm going to bow the knee of my heart, so to speak, and I'm going to put my trust in him. But if we never, we never acknowledge our need for the Savior, then we're very reluctant to do that. And I just want to pause. I just want to pause and pray because we're going to cover a lot. I want you to be able to stay with me. I want my words to make sense because I don't want to stumble over or trip over them. And I really want you to see the God of the flood is a God of grace. So let's pray together. Father God, we pause and we ask that you meet us here. Lord, I pray that you'd meet every single person in this room. As we have considered just briefly, the dark shadows that can exist in our heart. I pray for those who have trusted in Christ that we rejoice that you have saved us and that you're purifying us and you're making us more and more into the image of your son. You're sanctifying us as we walk with you. I pray for those who need to trust you today. Those dark spots, those that darkness in their heart maybe prevents them from believing that you would receive them. I pray that they might be able to lower their guard, put down their pride, their failures, and come to you. Lord, would you be gracious to us today? We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Lots of questions come to this passage, but here's one that really jumps out. Why did Noah survive? If it's a global flood, why did he survive? The first few verses about his story help us understand. Verses 9 and 10, chapter 6. They say this. They'll be on the screen behind me. This is the account of Noah. That's how we know we're starting in the story of Noah, that language, and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked faithfully with God. He had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Four things said about him. He's a dad, meaning he's an everyday guy going through the everyday issues of life. He walked with God, which is what we saw his great-grandfather do, Enoch, and and was no more. So he's got a, a personal relationship with God that's moment to moment, day to day. It says he's blameless, or another way to translate that is he's whole in a world that has fractured. He relates to people with integrity and he relates with God that way. But it's the first one I want to highlight. And he was righteous. He was righteous. This is the first time the word righteous occurs in the Bible. Everything that's going to be said in here is either a recounting of the story or words of God. Noah says nothing through the whole account. All we get to do is see Noah obey God over and over 
again. The word righteous is used. Now, last week we said one of the ways to understand the Bible, particularly a story like this, is let the Bible interpret the Bible for us. So we go to the New Testament, the chapter 11 of Hebrews, that great hall of fame of faith where all the stars of the Old Testament show up, not all of them, many of them. Noah's there. And this is what it says in verse 7 of Noah in Hebrews eleven seven. By faith, Noah, when he was warned about things not yet seen, never saw it, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with faith. What is the righteousness that's keeping with faith? It's the righteousness that comes from God. This is the only kind of righteousness the Bible talks about. It's not self-righteousness based on what we do and all the effort that we give it. Noah's trust in God and, it, and its righteousness to him. We'll see the same thing said of Abraham. We'll see the same thing said in the New Testament. So in your outline, we have this. Noah's righteousness came through faith. That's what's making him righteous. Too many Christians still live on a production performance reward system rather than a grace receive system. The performance reward system is I'm going to act righteous. You're going to be impressed, God, and then you're going to love me. And the onus is on us. The grace received is I'm going to trust you, God, and God's going to see that faith. He's going to give us his righteousness ultimately, and he's going to give us the strength to carry on. But it's our faith in him, and we're going to see this played out, and it's why it's so important. Now, the culture around us is all steeped in you get what you do. If you don't put in the work, you're not going to get anything out of it. No pain, no gain. But the economy of God is different. He wants you to trust in what he's done, not try to prove what you can do, because we can't do what he needs to be done. We can't be perfect. Pretty simple. And so in the first next few verses, 11 through 13, we're going to see why the judgment. Here it is again, kind of, kind of like what we saw in chapter 6, the first few verses, but here it is again. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. He gets to determine what's corrupt, not us. You're right, so, so I'll eat the bread with a little you know, mold on it. It's okay with me. Not my, not my wife, definitely not my children. You know, if there's one piece of mold, they're like, I'm not touching the whole loaf. It's just a little mold. It'll be okay. So they say it's corrupt. I say it's not. You follow? That's the point of the illustration. God says it's corrupt. It's corrupt. We don't get to go, yeah, it wasn't that bad. Yeah, he gets to say it. The earth, now the earth was uh, corrupt in God's sight and full of violence. The law saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on the earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I'm going, I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. What a statement. Now you can read that at one glance and go, what a statement of condemnation, which it is. He is telling of judgment coming. But here's the thing I don't want you to miss. He's telling it to Noah. And so you can also see it as warning. I don't know if you've ever been in the self-checkout line and you're you're doing the please beep so I can get out of here. And then somebody very graciously says, excuse me, sir, that one doesn't work. That's That's what happens to me. And then I notice the sign, broken. And then I move to the next one and everything. That person could just go, hey, look at the old guy. He doesn't know what he's doing, right? 
But in mercy, there's a, there's a warning. That one doesn't work. This is merciful. God warns Noah. Verse 14, so make yourself an ark of cypress wood, make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door on the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. Now we could try to you know, reproduce this. People have. But here's what I need you to see. It's 450 feet long. It's longer than a football field. It's 75 feet wide. It's wider than a football field. It's a big wooden boat. It's not as big as some on the ocean today. It's 45 feet high. God did not leave to Noah the imagination to create the means of salvation. God was very deliberate. I'm going to tell you exactly the size. And people that study the seaworthiness of, of vessels, they read this and go, that floats. That floats weighted down. Other Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern stories they always describe a cube. It's square. Well, I don't know the last time you were in a cube on water. Not a lot of fun. It kind of moves around like a ball. Not that I've ever done that, but uh, there it is. Verse 17. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth and destroy all life under the heavens. Every creature that has breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives. There's judgment and there's promise. This is going to happen, but I'm going to make a covenant with you. Now, the boat is the means of salvation. What really saves him is not the boat. It's God's covenant. I'm going to, I'm, and a covenant is a way of life. It's not just an agreement. And he calls it my covenant, not our covenant. It's, uni, it's unilateral. It's not based on both parties. It's based on one party. It's based on God. And he promises Noah, hey, this is going to happen, but I'm going to have a covenant with you. And all the time, he is, Noah is just responding in faith, judgment with promise. So second point, God saves Noah from God. Let me tell you what I mean by that, because you may have never thought of it that way. Oftentimes we think that God's going to save us from our common enemy, Satan. God's going to redeem us, as it says in Galatians 1, from this corrupt world. All those things are true, but what God has to save us from is from God. From Ultimately, he saves us from the penalty of our sin. So if we had to pay for our own sin, what would it cost us? Our life. It would annihilate us. We would no longer exist. So to save us from that, God provides a way. For Noah, it was the ark. For us, it's Jesus. That's the difference, the saving provision. Here's the thing. God's salvation requires God's provision. We can't create it ourselves. We can't just kind of figure it out on our own. God's salvation requires God's provision. And so there's the boat. I mean, there's the ark. Verse 19. And you're going to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, every kind of animal, every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to you to be kept alive. 
You are um, to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. And Noah did, we'll, we'll read this twice, Noah did everything that God had commanded him. Now here's an important thing. And if you, if you watch the 2014 version of Noah with Russell Crowe, you're gonna, it's just crazy. But that's part of the reason I'm reading all of this. Uh, but the animals come to Noah. He didn't have to go out there and go, come on, come on, come on, come on. They come to him. I don't understand it, but it, this was what makes sense to me. Trying to get, you know, if you have a cat, I don't, one, I don't know why, but two, if you had one, they don't come. You know, a dog will come to you. Cats just kind of do whatever. I'm trying to get a lion, a leopard. You know, they're, just, they're not playing. And you just think, how did this happen? They came to him. God said they would. We'll see it repeated. Noah did everything just as God commanded. No words from Noah, only from God. How hard would it have been to labor for days and weeks and months to build something you've never seen, that is as big as this is, and all the energy and all the money. God called Abraham to do something that required absolute faith, and he caused him to stand out from everything going on around him. He couldn't hide it in his backyard. It was on display for all to see. I don't know if anyone was interested, other than the, maybe the novelty of it. And isn't that what God calls us to do? Not to be different, not to build a boat, but to live for him, to be obedient to him. And is it difficult at times when the world around us doesn't make any sense of the values that we have? Yes, it's difficult. Sure it is. And here is here's Noah just showing himself faithful over and over again. Actually, Jesus would re um, refer to the story of Noah. One, in referring to it, I think he's authenticating that it happened. So if you wonder, did this happen? I think Jesus thought it happened. And two, what was happening in Noah's day parallels what happens when Jesus comes back. Here's what it says in Matthew's gospel, chapter, 30, uh, chapter 24, verse 36. But about that day, the day when Jesus returns, um, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, Jesus is saying, the angels don't know, I don't know, only God the Father knows, which is a huge Trinitarian kind of complexity, but that's for a different point. As it was in the days of Noah, so it'll be at the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus' title for himself. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage. They were partying, they were having a good time. People were getting married, carrying on. Up until the day Noah entered the ark, and we will see he enters the day it begins to rain. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them away. And then Jesus says, this is how it will be on the coming of the Son of Man. It's not to say that Christians don't keep your head up with anticipation. If you're expecting someone to show up, you're listening for them. You're looking for them. You're waiting for the garage door op to open. Yeah, he's home. She's home. If you're waiting for a baby to be born, you have a bag packed. It's not like you're not paying any attention. But there are people all around us that have thrown their fist in God's face and say, I don't care. They're not paying attention. And when Jesus comes back, it will be a complete and utter surprise for them. The question, of course, that drives us is, what about you? Are you ready? 
If he were to come back today, would you go, oh, wow, could you give me 24 hours? I just need a week. Let me get my house in order. That's not how it's going to work. That's not how it's going to work. Are you ready? You can get ready today. Put your trust in Jesus. Chapter 7, they all get on the boat. If you've ever taken a cruise, you know it takes a while to get on the boat. It takes even longer to get off the boat. Once they get you there, they got you. Here's what happens. The Lord said to Noah, go into the boat, into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and one pair of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven pairs of every kind of bird, male and female, and keep the various kinds alive uh, throughout the earth to keep the various kinds alive. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and for 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded. Go into the ark can also be translated, come onto the ark. It's like God is saying, come, come on. I'm, I want, you've gotten everything ready. Now I'm ready. Isn't that what Jesus says to us? Come, come. You can come, come to me. It's a great invitation of God. Now they mention clean and unclean animals, which will not be mentioned really in the fullness until the law of Moses. Why are they introduced here? I can't really fully explain that to you. All of the illustrations of clean and unclean were found to be true in Jesus. And so in the New Testament, they said, the New Testament teaches us there's all animals are clean. And we'll see a little bit next, a uh, little bit more about that next week. But here we also will see that Moses, I mean, excuse me, Noah's preparing to sacrifice animals and worship to God. That's next week. So I can't answer all of it, but he's got what it, everything that is needed, and he's doing everything the Lord has commanded. And then they're going to give Noah's age, so we can know how long he was on the ark. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. We talked a little bit about age last week. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wives entered the ark to escape the waters of the flood, pairs of clean and unclean animals, of birds and all creatures that move along the ground, male and female, came to Noah and entered the ark as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the flood waters came. It took seven days for all the animals that had gotten there to get on the boat. That's a long embarkation, but I can imagine that it's true. And then we're going to see the flood. Here's what you need to know. The waters come from above and below. If you lived here in 2016 and you experienced the flood of 2016, then you experienced three trillion gallons of water falling from the sky in 36 hours. If you were in Houston in 2017, you experienced 9 trillion gallons of water falling from the sky in 36 hours. Convert those hours into days. Not 36 hours, 36 days. And water from the ground. If any people on the planet could say, oh yeah, the earth can flood, it should be us, people from Louisiana. Right? I, I still remember people, you know, the only thing that... <laughs> The only thing that was salvaged during Katrina were the pictures on the front of the refrigerator. Maybe that happened to you because it, it got knocked over in the water and went to the ceiling and never got wet and then receded. And the plates, of course, that had a watermark on them that somehow you couldn't get off kind of makes you wonder what's in the water. But that's a different story. 
In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, very specific time, on that day all the springs of the great deep burst forth from the ground, and the floodgates of heaven opened, and the rain fell for 40 days and 40 nights. And then the next verse says, on that very day, when the rains became began, it says in verse 13, on that very day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth, together with his wife and the wives of his three sons, entered the ark. Starts raining, the animals are on it, they get on it. They had with them every kind of wild animal according to its kind. Why does it keep repeating this? It used to be that you would type something and you'd have it in triplicate. You'd have multiple copies of it. You make multiple copies of things that are important. God said this would happen. God's showing this has happened. And it's, it's in triplicate because it's important to say, this is what God said, here's, here's what happened, and here's what Noah did. So it's all, you know, all the livestock according to their kinds, every creature that moves along the ground according to its kind, every bird according to its kind, everything with wings, pairs of all creatures that, that have the breath of life in them came to Noah and entered the ark. They're entering the ark. They're coming to Noah. The animals going in were male and female of every living thing as God had commanded Noah. And then it says, then the Lord shut him in. I love that. Other Near Eastern accounts say the man shutting the door to keep the gods out because the gods are angry. The biblical account says, no, that's not what was going on. God shut the door, protecting man from judgment. It's a, it's a benevolent move. Let me close the door. Like a parent, you know, after checking the, the top of the car, make sure there's no children up there. You know, is everybody in? Okay, we're going to close it. We're gonna, now I've got them all in. I'm locking the doors and I feel good, right? The door is locked and closed. For 40 days, it says in verse 17, for 40 days the flood kept coming on the earth and the waters increased and they filled the, the, filled the ark, excuse me, and they lifted the ark high above the earth. The waters rose and increased greatly on the earth and the ark floated on the surface of the water. They rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. The waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubics. Is this a localized flooding or a global flooding? I don't know. I don't know. The point here is that a boat that big would, would draw 22 feet of water. When it's loaded with its maximum tonnage, that's how much it's going to displace. And the writer's saying, and that didn't hit the ground. That's how high the water was over the mountains. Every living thing that moves along the ground perished, as God said it would. The birds, the livestock, wild animals... This is verse 21. All the creatures that swarm over the earth and uh, all mankind, everything on the dry land that had breath, had the breath of life in its nostrils. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out, people and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those with him in the ark. The waters flooded the earth for 150 days. In other words, everything that God said would happen, happened. Everything that God says will happen, will happen. And it happened here. And then the whole thing turns. I don't know the last time you were 150 days into something and you looked out over over the horizon, and you don't see God anywhere. That's the ark. It's floating on water eerily, all by itself above the mountaintops. And it's been a long time. And maybe you're experiencing that. Chapter 8, verse 1. But God remembered Noah. It's not like he'd forgotten him. Oh, my gosh, Noah's on the, on the water. That's not what this is. 
This memory is, I am reestablishing something I started. But God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock that were with him in the ark. And he sent a wind over the earth, and the waters receded. Now he remembers Noah, and everything begins to change. Verse 2, And the springs of the deep and the floodgates in heaven had been closed, and the rains had stopped falling from the sky. The water receded steadily from the earth. At the end of 150 days, the water had gone down. And on the 17th day of the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. The waters continued to receive until the 10th month. And on the first day of the 10th month, the tops of the mountains were visible. The, the mountains of Ararat are in Turkey, near Iran and Armenia. Where this is exactly, I don't know. I don't know. But that's where it says the ark landed. And then it says this, after 40 days, Noah opened the window, 40 days of rain. He opened the window that he made in the ark and he sent out a raven and it kept flying back and forth until the water had dried up on the earth. It just kept flying until it disappeared. Other ancient accounts reverse this order. They send the dove first and then the raven. This, of course, makes more sense. Ravens are very strong. They eat dead fish. You send the raven first. And then when it doesn't come back, we're making progress. Then he sent out the dove in verse 8. Uh, to see if the water had receded from the surface of the ground, but the dove couldn't find anywhere to perch because the water was over all the surface of the earth. So it returned to Noah in the ark. He reached out his hand and took the dove and brought it back in, uh, brought it back to himself in the ark. In verse 10, he waited seven more days. Another week goes by. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. And when the dove returned that evening, uh, there in its beak was a flesh, freshly plucked olive leaf. Then Noah knew that the water had receded from the earth. He waited seven more days and sent the dove out again, but this time it did not return. He's waiting week after week. I don't know about you, but if you've been on a boat for a year, an ark, in a zoo with your family, whoo, no Thanksgiving jokes right now, okay? Zoo, family, I know, how I do. I know what some of y'all are thinking. That's a long time. How many of you have been watching the lake project back here with any interest? As soon as the lakes were empty, things started to grow. Do you notice that? I mean, it's like within the week, the bottom of the lake started turning green, the only thing that was green. And that's what's happening here. And he's, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. Verse 13, by the first day of the first, excuse me, by the first day of the first month of Noah's 601st year. He's 601 now. He's been on this ark for a year plus. The water had dried up from the earth and Noah then removed the covering from the ark and he saw that the surface of the ground was dry. By the 27th day of the second month, the earth was completely dry. Wow. And Noah did not move. He's still on the ark. I don't know if you've ever been in the marshes of Louisiana. My first time there, I did not realize that just because there's grass doesn't mean there's ground. And if you've ever been there, I went with a friend of mine and we got something hung up in some weeds. And he said, look, just pull up near there. I'll get out of the boat and I'll get it. So he got out of the boat and the earth swallowed him. It was amazing. By the time he got back in the boat, he had no no shoes, no socks, no pants. He had nothing. The earth ate it all. 
If I had been Noah, I would have said, oh, I see grass. I see it. I'm not worried about the elephants. Surely they can. I would have run out into it and probably sank into the mud. Noah does not do that. Verse 15. Then God said to Noah, come out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and their wives, bring out every kind of living creature that is with you, the birds, the animals, all the living creatures that move along the ground so they can multiply on the earth, be fruitful and increase in number on it. That's part of the first desire. So what I need you to see here is the obedient, the level of obedience that Noah is practicing. He waits to the very end and still waits. One of the hardest things to do is waiting on the Lord. Waiting. Some of you have been waiting months. Some of you may be waiting a year. Some of you have been maybe waiting longer than that. Some of you have looked out over the horizon and wonder if you're alone. God remembered Noah. He didn't forget him. God does not forget you. That's just not who he is. Can you trust him? And can you wait? Can, Noah did. Verse 18. So Noah came out together with his sons and his wife and his sons' wives and all the animals and all the creatures that move along the ground and all the birds, everything that moves on the land, came out of the ark one kind after another. I love that. Noah waited till God said, I need you to come out. I need you to come out. So it's a story, sure, of Noah and the flood. Here it is. No felt, no movie stars. There it all is. But it's first and foremost a story of God's judgment, which is really hard for us. Too often we see God either as an as a over-benevolent grandfather type that would never judge anybody or a God who's off his rocker. He's come off the hinges and he's angry and all he wants to do is destroy. That's not what we see in Genesis. What we see is wickedness and evil is so prevalent, God must act. And in his actions, he saves Noah from his own judgment. Christopher Watkin, W-A-T-K-I-N. Every time I say this, Connor Bird hears Christopher Watkin. It's not the actor. It's a British intellectual, two different people. This is W-A-T-K-I-N, Watkin. He says this, it is, what is fascinating about the way God is presented in the flood narrative is that he is neither simply furious nor utterly benevolent, but he acts to save people out of the midst of his own wrath and settled opposition to sin. He's done this. What doesn't make sense is the grace of God and the fact that Noah was preserved. But that's what God did, and that's what God does today in Jesus Christ. The last point is, our ark is Jesus. We're to enter into his salvation by faith. We're to trust that his death on the cross was our death. We're to trust that he died our death and rose to give us life. This is the core of Christianity. And it's represented by the same God of Genesis 6, 7, and 8. God sent his son to take on the full force of the flood on our behalf so we could escape the judgment. God, Jesus is our ark. Like Noah, you have to get in the ark. You have to follow the invitation. 
And I wonder if you would today. If you have trusted in Christ, then you can rejoice that you're saved from God in God. But if you haven't, and don't put it off. Trust him today. This is such good news. And when you read the story of Noah and the ark, we'll get to the rainbow. I know some of you are like, where's the rainbow? It's next week. It's next week. Okay, settle down. I got to save something for Thanksgiving weekend. But just God is gracious. And you're like, well, Kevin, he destroyed all the wickedness. Yeah, he did. He did. I don't know the last time you had an infection, but I don't think you wanted any of it left in your body. It's funny how we can pursue holiness about some things, but not others. You follow me? I need all of the infection out of my system. All of it. I want to be holy <laughs> in, in a medical sense. I don't want any of that left. Yeah. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for our morning. Thank you for Noah's faithfulness to you, his belief in you. Thank you for your faithfulness to Noah and to us. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice regularly that we have salvation in Jesus. And Lord, I pray for those here today. If you're here today and you need to trust in Christ, I invite you to put your faith in him today. Not just an intellectual assent that he was, but a belief deep in your heart that he was, in, in fact, on that cross for you, that he died in your place. He took the penalty that you deserve, that I deserve, upon himself. The Bible tells us that, that he who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, for me, for you, so that we might become the righteousness of God. And how do we acquire that righteousness by faith, by faith. I pray that you would call out to God right where you are. Take a minute and say, God, today I'm going to trust you. All I know about me, I entrust to all I know about you. I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me and I give my life to that. I trust him. I believe that he rose from the dead to give me life victoriously over death. And I thank you that you'll forgive me and welcome me into your forever family. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.